introduce myself at the beginning. My name is Marshall, and I'll be teaching on the passages that Greg just read for us. I want to highlight a couple of things real quickly before I uh, pray for us and we get, uh, and we get started. Uh, first is this, I'd like to invite you, my wife and I would like to invite you to our home if you have never been to one of our Welcome to Grace events. The details are in the bulletin, but on September 30th, uh, we do this about three or four times a year. We welcome, uh, if you're new to Grace, if you want to have questions, or frankly, you just want to kind of get to know me or more likely my wife better, um, we welcome you to our home. And so think about that. It's in the bulletin. The details are you can sign up for Welcome to Grace. It really is a lot of fun, and uh, it's a chance to get to know some of us better, some of the staff, uh, to hear a little bit more about our church, and to ask some questions, uh, all with my wife's uh, lovely uh, hospitality. Um, I do, uh, after the, the, today we're going to talk about miracles and, um, which I thought, man, this can be easy. You know, like, <laughs> this, I, I got this. And, uh, the more I've studied, even the more writing this sermon, there's actually, there's a lot here. And so I feel like I'm walking in a minefield. There's several minds I could step on. And so to that end, I, after the service, I'm going to be down front. I usually am in the back, but I'm going to be down front. If you want a uh, prayer for something, uh, or if you have questions that you want to ask about this, the sermon or any of this text or anything in the life of the church, uh, I invite you to, uh, to come down front uh, or reach out to me later. But let me pray for us as we look at these uh, passages. God, we, uh, we come to look at uh, the miracles of Jesus, and uh, it's easy to put a lot of distance Uh, between ourselves and these stories because most of us don't know things like this have happened. We've never seen them and many of us would believe them but not know how to interact with them, not know how to get close to them. And so both for the skeptic who doubts that these things happen and for the believer who uh, feels like they have little familiarity with events like this, we need your spirit to show us, we need your spirit to show up uh, to bring close what feels distant. So, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you. Be with us, Lord Christ. Amen. Well, it's interesting to think about your own childhood. And I realized that, I mean, I was born, my childhood was basically before the wall came down in 1989, which meant my childhood was the Cold War. Okay, like uh, the 80s, that was, that, that, was, that, was my, that was me. And so it's hard to go back to that moment in some ways, although maybe easier than a year and a half ago uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but in the days of the Cold War, uh, especially when it came to athletics and to sports, no one came and went to the, to the Soviet Union. Like, there was no, there was no athletes who played. There was no, we have all these Russian players in the NHL now. That didn't exist. Uh, when it came to um, the, the Olympics, in 1980 specifically, uh, the Americans only sent amateurs to the Olympics. There was no professional athletes. And so the Russians, the Soviets, were very much a world where you couldn't go there. They never came to us. And there was these rumors about their athletic prowess and how great they were. You know, the East German track athletes and the, and the Soviet, you know, hockey team and all this. But they were so, they were exotic. There was a very much an otherness to them. And so in February of 1980, when I was six years old, uh, all of those things were in play. I mean, the Russians were very distant. You didn't know any Russians like you do today. And in 1980, in February, the American hockey team, which was basically a bunch of kids, a bunch of kids, uh, college amateur hockey players, none of them in the NHL, 
were playing the Russians, none of whom they knew. They, it wasn't like they were in the same locker room together like they are today. These, these men, I mean, the, most of them were in the Soviet army, okay? So there's a bunch of men playing these American boys, okay? February 22nd, 1980, Lake Placid. I think it's one of my earliest memories. I have memories from that morning. Uh, you know, memories are a funny thing when you're that young. I tried to recall it with my dad this week, uh, but I'm almost certain it's one of my first memories because uh, I have a memory of my dad in his robe screaming at the TV. Because if you remember, if you're old enough to remember that, it was actually not the gold medal game. The gold medal game was a couple days later. But the Americans ended up beating the Soviets. And it led to one of the most famous calls in all of sports history. Al Michaels, I still love Al Michaels for this line alone. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? Yes! And my dad just erupted in his robe. It was an early morning game for some reason. Do you believe in miracles? And I wonder this morning, do you? Do you believe in miracles? Not of the athletic variety, but of the variety that Greg just read for us. And maybe you have seen or experienced a miracle. I have no doubt in a room this size that uh, folks have experienced miracles. And you're all in. You're all in. But maybe you're of a skeptical bent. And you just like, you, like the teachings of Jesus, the overall message of the gospel, great, 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 great. But miracles, uh, I just don't, I can't buy it. I cannot buy it. Or maybe you look at, for instance, even, in, let's just look at the paper this week, the news this week. You look at 11,000 dead in Libya because of flooding. And you think if Jesus could feed 5,000 people, why couldn't he hold those dams together? If he could feed 5,000, why couldn't he hold the dams together? Or if you're a close reader of the New Testament or the Scriptures, you may notice, you know, like, Jesus actually doesn't do that many miracles. And he often, when asked to do a miracle, often says no. And even when he does do a miracle, there's still a ton of pain in the world, quantitatively and qualitative. I mean, like, Simon Peter's mother-in-law is healed here in the story we just read. But she's going to die, okay? Like, it's a temporary reprieve, but she is still going to die. Or maybe you have prayed for something, for yourself, for someone you love, for a situation. You have prayed for a miracle, and you have poured your heart out. You've asked other people to pray. You have given yourself to this, and there was no answer, or at least the answer was not a miracle. The disease remains. The loved one dies. What do you think about miracles. It's interesting, if you were with us last week, Jesus preached a sermon, and then he chose to illustrate it. He chose to illustrate his sermon with two stories of miracles, okay? Two stories of miracles. One was the healing of a widow, the other of a foreign general. They were both foreigners, and when he told those stories, the people were irate. They wanted to kill him because he talked about the healing, the miracles of others. Now, there was a racial component in that, but I want to suggest also the reason they hated him so much because the sense when you hear about someone else's miracle is, why not me? Why not me? Why the widow of Zarephath? Why Naaman the Syrian? Why not me? Why not my ancestors? Why not my family? When you get close to miracles, they're just not that straightforward. And I think if you're honest, I know if I'm honest, they kind of bug me. <laughs> They get under my skin just a little bit. There's, like, there's these kind of, sh like, like, at a distance, they're like a magic show. Like, that's cool. But when you get up close, I actually think there's a lot about miracles that get to us and even bother us. Now, we're in the midst of a sermon series called Jesus Unexpected. 
Jesus unexpected. And what is unexpected is not that Jesus does miracles. It's that he does not do more miracles. It's unexpected that he often says no when asked to do a miracle. And then there's this, you know, like later in the New Testament, the New Testament, uh, Jesus will empower his disciples and they are able to perform miracles. I mean, you see John and Peter, they perform miracles. Uh, and it's not, like, why does, if, if, if Jesus is able to do that, he's able to empower people to do miracles, and, he, and why doesn't he just empower a bunch of miracle workers to go around making the world a better place? Curing cancer, stopping up dams so that 11,000 people and more don't die, stopping fires in Maui. Why doesn't Jesus just have miracles out there? Wouldn't it help his case? I mean, more people would believe in him, right? And the world would be a better place. Why doesn't he just, you know, kind of tap 12 people and they tap 12 more and he just kind of all through the world, there's a bunch of miracle workers and everything's getting better and people are just like, hallelujah. Why? Now, to understand miracles in the Bible, the first thing you have to understand is the actual word miracle. Because the word miracle hardly occurs in the New Testament scriptures. The word miracle comes from the Latin. The Bible was not written in Latin. Uh, And the Greek equivalent, the Greek equivalent of the word miracle from Latin is the Greek word thaumason. Now thaumason. And that word only occurs one time in the New Testament. The word that is miracle only occurs one time in Matthew 21. And a miracle is something that causes wonder. Because when these things happen... Uh, The New Testament, the sense is not so much something that causes wonder, but a portent, a prodigious sign, a symbolic action that authenticates Jesus' mission. The actual New Testament words, I'll give them to you in Greek and then translate them. The actual New Testament words for what we call miracles are paradoxa, something that's not expected. Dunamis, you can hear dynamite in there, a powerful display, dunamis. Or maybe most common, same, which means signs, power, signs, paradox. So a better, more biblical word than miracles might be mighty powers, mighty works, or maybe best of all, signs. Signs. And now, today I'm going to use all three. I'm going to kind of interchange them. So when I say signs, mighty works, or miracles, I'm talking about the same thing. I'm, my, I tried to make it consistent. I was like, forget it. It's just, you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about it, Okay. But the main one I think to consider is signs. And think about signs. Think about just signs in general. Last night my family was walking and my son looked up at a street sign. He said, why is it like this? Why is it here? It's, just, it's a good question for a second grader to ask. You know, because you think about signs. Why are, they, why, are, why are street signs not in the middle of the block? You know? uh, what is a sign meant to do? Like I could say, you know, I could put a sign on the stage this way to Berlin, Germany. <laughs> That's not that helpful though, right? Uh, it's true. It's east. But was that, is it that helpful? What are signs? Why do we place them where they are? And what I want to look at this morning, my three points are what signs are, what the signs point to, and then beyond the signs. So what signs are, what they point to, and then beyond the signs. First, what are the signs? And first thing, three things the signs are not. Three things the signs of Jesus are not, the miracles of Jesus are not. First of all, they are not to show off his power. They are not to show off his power. There's approximately three dozen or so miracles, signs, mighty works recorded in the New Testament. There's 21 recorded in the Gospel of Luke. That's not that many. And his mighty works, they are limited and they are very intentional. 
Uh, if he was trying to show off his power, there would be more, and they would be more indiscriminate. But he is very, they're, they're, it's a limited number, and how he does it is very intentional. So first of all, they're not to show off his power. Second of all, they're not to gather a crowd, okay? They're not to gather a crowd. You would think he would just do these things and gather a crowd. Like, if I could do miracles, trust me, I would do them. Um, because the first miracle we see here, he cast out a demon. And what does he do? He tells the demon to be quiet, verse 35 of chapter 4, Okay? And then in, in, in the later verses, in verses 42 and 43, when he starts to get reputation as a miracle worker, what does he do? He moves on. He doesn't continue to cultivate that reputation. The miracles are not designed to gather a crowd. Nor, maybe you've heard this before, they are not primarily the miracles or signs to prove that Jesus is God. That's not primarily what miracles are about. They're not to prove that Jesus is God. Now, in the pre-critical world, the pre-modern world, the existence of miracles, of signs, or proof that Jesus was God, okay? But then when the scientific method in the modern world came into existence, the claims of miracles actually undermined Jesus' claim to be God, his claim to deity. And the problem with both the modern and the pre-modern, the problem with both is the New Testament never intended for the miracles to prove that Jesus was God. That's not their point, okay? I mean, think about this. There were people who saw Jesus' miracles and did not believe in him. Okay? They saw the Jesus' miracle and they did not believe he was the Son of God. For instance, in John chapter 11, Jesus raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. The religious leaders, they see this resurrected man. They do not believe. So what do they do? They want to try and kill Lazarus to destroy the evidence. You can actually see a miracle and not believe. You can see a miracle and not believe. And the reason is, a sign is not the same thing as proof. The sign is not the same thing as proof. A sign is a marker for someone who is looking in the right direction. A sign is a marker for someone who is looking in the right direction. The great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky says this, The genuine realist, if he is an unbeliever, will always find the strength and ability to disbelieve in the miraculous. And if he is confronted with a miracle as an irrefutable fact, he would rather disbelieve his own senses than admit the fact. You can, believe, you can see a miracle and still not believe. Well, let me summarize what I've made, the point I've made so far about what signs are not. I'm quoting the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. He says this, Within the public career of Jesus... The mighty works were not simply showy magic, nor were they attempts to win support from the crowds, and they were certainly not indications that Jesus was divine. The signs were the physical inauguration of the kingdom of Israel's God. Now, before we get to what signs are, so that's what signs are. Before we get to what signs are, and I feel like there's these couple of sides I've got to have in this sermon. Uh, two things real quickly as a side. I think it's easy for us to think, well, those old-time people, they believed, it's harder for us to believe. No, that's not true. The signs, the miracle, were just as hard to believe then as they are now. Just as hard. And I'll give you this proof. Okay, the mother of Jesus was a woman named Mary. Her husband was a man named Joseph. She was, according to the scriptures, impregnated by the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth, okay? And Joseph was concerned about Mary's pregnancy. He was engaged at the time. He was concerned about her pregnancy for the very reason that he doubted the miraculous. You see? Joseph was concerned about Mary's pregnancy because he didn't believe in miracles. Okay? So it's not easier for them than it is for us. Second thing I want to say as an aside, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, so I'm repeating myself. 
everyone believes in at least one miracle. No matter who you are in this room or on my, hearing online, everyone believes in at least one miracle. Because if you don't believe in the mighty works of the Bible, let's say you believe in the Big Bang. You can believe in the Big Bang and be a Christian too, but that's a whole other story for another day. You believe in the Big Bang though, which is believing that something came from nothing and stuff began, which is a total singularity. It is unrepeated. It's unrepeated, something from nothing, stuff beginning, which is to say a singularity is a miracle. There's something that there's nothing else like it. Or if you don't believe in the big blade, you believe there was no beginning, We've just, things have just always been. Things have always been as they are. The processes have just always been. Well, that also is a singularity. We know nothing that has no beginning. So everyone believes in at least one miracle, Okay. Asides aside. Now, three things, and this is more general about the signs. Three things more generally about the signs of Jesus. The first is the signs are based on eyewitness accounts. They are based on eyewitness accounts, and this is where their trustworthiness comes from, which is why the details of the scripture matter. The historicity matters. Because Luke is writing, the Gospel of Luke was written within three or four decades of the events that he talks about, the events that he narrates within three or four decades, not generations, three or four decades. So when he says in one of these stories that the healing takes place in this place, verse 31, a town called Capernaum, which we know where it is, it takes place in Capernaum, it takes place on a certain day, on the Sabbath day, and then in verse 38, he names someone, Simon's mother-in-law, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Specific place, a specific time, a specific person. There were people still alive who could confirm or deny these eyewitness details. No, it is true there is no video or instant replay. But in the ancient world, concrete eyewitness testimony that was disprovable, you could disprove it actually, you can't, you can't say it's true unless it's actually able to be disproved, was the standard. And these are all, all these signs are presented as eyewitness accounts. So the first thing, the signs are eyewitness accounts. Second thing, this is kind of fun, I like this. The signs are actually natural. The signs are natural. Let me quote several authors. They are not otherworldly. The signs are not otherworldly. I love what N.T. Wright says. I'm paraphrasing him. The New Testament word works do not have overtones of invasion from another world. Rather, there's a power at work within the created order that enables the creation to be more truly itself. Or the New Testament theologian from Germany, Jorgen Moltmann. What a great name, Jorgen Moltmann. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They're not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Philip Yancey plays on that by saying it somewhat in a different vein. He says it from the opposite side. He says this, Philip Yancey does it, death, decay, Entropy, destruction, those are the true suspensions of God's laws. Miracles are the early glimpses of the restoration. Restoration to what is true and good. Miracles, signs are natural. They're the way things are supposed to be. It's not supposed to be death and destruction and sickness. It is supposed to be life and fullness. 
So they're trustworthy based on the eyewitnesses. They are natural. The third thing I want to say is the signs point to something. These signs, they point to something, and they specifically point to the way things are supposed to be. Because the signs actually point, Jesus' miracles, they actually point two ways. They point, to the, they point back to Eden, to the Garden of Eden, where there was no sin, where there was no sickness, where there was no death, where there was perfect communion between humans and with God. They point back to Eden, to a world where there was no sin, no broken, no rebellion, no crippled people, no sick people, no people who, were, who couldn't stop bleeding. But the signs also point forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Where Revelation 21 tells us there'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more death. All the tears, all your tears will be wiped away. And the miracles are a hint of what God intends to do with our world one day. They instill hope that one day God will put the world to rights. And in this sense, the signs, the mighty works, the miracles, they are an inbreaking of the future. That's what the signs are. They're an inbreaking of your, this is the way the world one day will be. But one day it was, and it will be again. You know, it's the end of summer, and one of my favorite summer traditions is to go to the ice cream store, Homer's, Grater's, whatever your place is. And one of my favorite things to do is, you know, you know what you're going to get. You know you're getting Rocky Road, but you get the taste of like four other things. What's your limit? You know, you go, well, what's your limit? You know, how many, how many tastes can I have? Because what is that taste? It is a small it is a small but a reminder of an actual replica of what the actual ice cream will be. It's just as good. It's only smaller. And it's a promise of the full order to come. That's what miracles are. They are just as good. They're only smaller than the full order is to come. And one last thing I need to say before I move on to my second point is that there's this sense of that, that the salvation has come. There's a now and a not yet. The miracles are the now of what is coming in the future, right? The now and the not yet. Okay, so we've seen that. We've seen the, what the miracles are. They're eyewitness accounts. They are natural, and they, are, they point to something. Well, what do they point to? And with this, we get more specifically to these stories. What do the signs point to? Look with me in Luke chapter 4. Now, this is a common literary device across all, you know, kind of... Uh, Literature in many ways. Luke 13, uh, 4, verses 31 to 32, it's like a day in the life. It starts in the morning and it goes through till the evening. This is saying that this is what a life in Jesus, a day in Jesus' life was like. And the episodes here, and there's three episodes I'm going to talk about. One is from not this day, but in chapter 5. But these episodes are like puzzle pieces, okay? They're like puzzle pieces. In Luke chapter 4, which we looked at last week, Jesus preaches a sermon and he announces his ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has, proclaimed, he has anointed me to proclaim peace and preach the good news. And that's kind of the frame of the puzzle. And now Jesus, for the rest of his ministry, is going to start laying down the puzzle pieces that will eventually one day be a full puzzle and he, we will see what he intends to do, who he intends to be. And these three healings are like three puzzle pieces and they're pointing to why Jesus came and what he came to do. There are pu three puzzle pieces pointing to why Jesus came and what he came to do. The first puzzle piece is the, the healing of the demoniac man. And this puzzle piece points to the end of evil. The end of evil. Let me just say this before we get into this. It's interesting, is it not, that Jesus' first miracle is attacking the powers of evil. 
It's a declaration of war against evil. Verse 31, Jesus goes to Capernaum, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he again preaches. Verse 32, it says, the people are astonished because, quote, he possessed authority. And then verses 33 and following, read along with me. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out, having done him no harm. Verse 36 says that the response of the crowd is, What is this word? And it says, With authority and power, he casts out demons. Okay? Now, that word authority is the same word that you used to describe his preaching. He preaches with authority. But now he says, Not just authority, but power. Okay? Now think about the relationship between authority and power. Power, authority connotes that you are in the right, that you are doing the right thing. Power connotes that you have the might to take it out, okay? So you, for instance, might have the authority to make a citizen's arrest if you see someone committing a crime. You have the authority, but if the person is twice your size, you don't have the power, okay? Or to put it another way, you might have the power to punish a criminal while taking the law into your own hands. You might have that power, but you do not have that authority. And what it's saying is that Jesus has both the authority, the right, and the power. He actually has the ability to do so. Now, a quick word on demons. A quick word on demons. Uh, my argument for the existence of demons, uh, really it's an argument for the existence of evil, is threefold. The Bible, the world, and your life. Okay, I'm not going to go deep here, but the Bible, the world, and your life are an, are an argument for the existence of evil and even the demonic. The Bible says so. The world is very broken. Systemically, all of nature, everything in the world is broken. The world has real evil in it, but also it's not just out there in the world. It is in your life. Maybe you have done something. Maybe something has been done to you that can only be described as evil, okay? I think one thing way that we can get closer to these miracles is if we see them as on a continuum. No, you may not be demon-possessed. You may not have encountered someone demon-possessed, but there is a continuum of evil. This is an extreme version, right? But we all touch evil. We all actually have evil within us. And what do evil in general do? Evil in general bent on destruction. They're bent on chaos, they want to tear relationships, relationship between God and people, between husbands and wives, between families and their children, between humans and creation. They foster oppression, chaos, hatred, and violence. But in this case, we see some more details about the way that evil and the demonic work. Again, remember to think of the continuum so that it makes sense for your life. The first thing, I think this is fascinating, that evil hides in religion. <laughs> The most disturbing thing in this passage is verse 33. On the Sabbath, in the synagogue. On church, in, in church on Sunday morning. That's what that's saying. That is where the demon is. He does not take him to the strip club. He does not take him to the bar. He does not take him to the brothel. Where does he take him? He takes him to church. Second thing about this demon, he wants to avoid, and evil avoids Jesus. What does the demon say? Verse 33, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? A better way to translate that, a more common way to say, why are you interfering with me? Don't meddle with me. Leave us alone. 
evil and the demonic, they, again, the continuum, they want to keep us away from Jesus. They don't want Jesus to interfere in our lives. And the best thing in your life and in mine is for Jesus to interfere. <laughs> the best thing in your life is for Jesus to interfere, to come near, to draw you to himself, to break the allegiances to false gods that will never satisfy you. The best thing in your life is for Jesus to meddle in your life, to interfere. But what do demons and evil? They just want to keep us away. There's a great southern novelist, Flannery O'Connor. Some of you have read her. Uh, one of her characters says this, the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. And it's this idea that if you can just kind of be a righteous religious person and you can hide in religion, you can actually stay away from Jesus. Demons come to hide in religion to avoid Jesus. And then finally, what do evil and the demonic do? They tell lies about God and ourselves. Verse 34b, they ask, have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? And if you're honest, doesn't your heart recognize that cry? Don't you recognize that cry? We believe that God has come to destroy us, to take away our happiness, to leave us unfulfilled. It is the lie we're all tempted to believe about God. We want to view God sometimes as our adversary, not as our good father who wants to give us good gifts. Why have you come to destroy us? Jesus casts this demon out because Jesus comes to tell the truth and he comes to bring healing. He flushes him from hiding. This is the declaration of war against evil and the promise that one day evil will be no more. One day evil will be no more. Second and more briefly, the second miracle the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And this one points to Jesus setting us free to be who we're supposed to be. Setting you free to be you. Verse 38, Jesus leaves church. He leaves the synagogue. He goes to Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law is ill with a high fever. Verse 39, he heals her. But what I want to draw attention to is the result of that healing. Verse 39, the end of it, the fever left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. She is healed so that she can be herself. And apparently this woman loves to serve. So the first thing she does when she's healed is she begins to serve. The miracles, the signs, they are pointing to the end of time when you will be fully you. When you will be most yourself. Free to give yourself to the world. Her calling was to serve. Don't let, you know, patriarch, you know, don't let, don't let a cynical view of this passage. Like she just got up, she's a woman in the ancient world, so she got up to serve. No, this was her. There are people in the world who love to serve. I'm not one of them. But there are people in the world who love to serve. This was her calling. Jesus sets her free to be her. How do you need to be set free to be all that God is calling you to be? Who are you? What are the gifts and the passions within you that meet the world's great needs? What are the passions, the gifts, the desires within you that meet great needs in the world? I love what one of the early church fathers says. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive, fully who they are called to be. What is your particular gift, your unique gift? Think of your name. What is my gift? Because salvation is not just about saving this woman who is sick to serve, but it is about coming to make you, you. Jesus comes to radically rehumanize us 
It's not to prove that he's the God. It's to show you who you are supposed to be. He makes this woman whole and well again. The way she will be in the age to come. And he comes to do the same for us. But miracles are not just about freeing us, setting us free to be ourselves. But they are thirdly, and we see this in the, in the story in chapter 5. They're restoring us to community with one another. Chapter 5, verses 12 to 16, this healing of this leopard. Sometimes our individualistic society uh, blinds us from seeing the communal aspects of these mighty works. And we see this most clearly in chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. Uh, To be a leper in the ancient world. You know, leprosy actually was only kind of a thing of the past about 100 years ago. Um, uh, Before Peter was born, Alice and I traveled to Crete. Uh, it was a great treat to travel to Crete. I didn't mean to say that, but I just did. Um, um, but we stayed in Alunda Bay. And if you're in Alunda Bay, you can actually look out, and there's a small island that was not long ago a leper colony. You can see it. Like our hotel actually faced this leper colony, which was only closed down about 100 years ago. Because if you were a leper, even 100 years ago, you had to go to places like that and be totally cut off. They took a ship in every day that you could never leave the island, this little bitty island in the Mediterranean. But to be a leper in the ancient world was just as bad. You were, t- you were not a full member of the community. You couldn't go to church. You had to do online church. I mean, thank God for online church for people in situations like this. They had to live apart with no human contact. And think about this, no human touch. Anyone who come, came near them, they would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that you would make your way around them. Um. It's a totally cut off experience. This leper is desperate. And so verse 12, he throws himself at Jesus' feet. Lord, you can make me clean. And one of the most tender passages in all the scripture, Jesus reaches out and somebody who probably has not been touched in years, and he touches him. He says, I will be clean. The first human contact in years. And then he goes the next step. He takes this man, he sends him to the priest so that he could be declared ceremonially and publicly clean. He is free to re-enter the community. He's been totally apart. This is not just a physical healing. This is an emotional, this is a social healing. He is making him whole again, able to enter to the community. So these signs, we've seen what they are, we've seen what they point to. They point to the end of evil. The signs point to that you are free to be who God has created you to be and to enter into community. So don't miss the point of of asking of yourself, Are you somehow oppressed by evil in some way? Maybe you hear voices in your head. Are you not feeling like yourself? You're not serving and giving like you would like to. Or maybe you just feel alone, cut off from community. You feel like a leper. These miracles point to the salvation Jesus comes to bring. A salvation that restores all things. Now some of you are like Marshall. I mean your head is in the sand. Uh, I've wanted these things, I've prayed for these things, I've wanted a better job, I've wanted a kinder spouse, I've prayed to get pregnant, I've prayed to get well, I've prayed for my mother-in-law to get well, I've prayed for these voices in my head to be quiet. Well, listen, friends, Luke is no blind optimist when he tells us these stories, because Luke will also write about Jesus' death. Luke will also write about Paul's imprisonment. He'll write about Stephen being stoned. This is not Pollyanna hope. This is hope that is steeled in the fires of affliction. It is a hope that cries, but it is a hope that one day will laugh. 
I love what Robert Farrar Capon says about this. The Messiah was not going to save the world by the miraculous. Band-aid interventions, a storm calmed here, a crowd fed there, a mother-in-law cured. Rather, it was going to be saved by means of a deeper, darker, left-handed mystery at the center of which was Jesus' own death. Because think about Jesus, and this is where we get beyond the signs. Think about Jesus and his interaction with the miraculous. We saw several weeks ago in the temptation, he passed on the opportunity to turn bread, I mean to turn stones into bread. He passed on the opportunity to jump from the temple and have angels save him. And at the very end of his life, he resists calling for miracles at his own crucifixion. Why? Why is Jesus so reluctant to experience miracles himself when he is the bringer of miracles? The reason is this. These miracles, they are pictures of the puzzle. They're pieces of the puzzle. But they are not the whole puzzle. There is a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture. And these signs point beyond the miraculous to Jesus' calling. I want to call, we're right near at the end here, but I want you to look back at the text with me real quick. Look at verse 42 of chapter 4. Jesus does these miracles. He gathers a crowd. And what does he do? He goes away to a desolate place. Or then look at chapter 5, verse 16. After he heals the leper, what does it say? He withdrew by himself to pray. He keeps on doing these miracles and then going away. And he does so to pray. Why does he do this? I think Jesus needed to hear his father's voice. He needed to abide with his father to be reminded of what his mission was. Because his mission wasn't come to do all these miracles or even to experience these miracles. Because Jesus' calling, and friends, this is the good news of the gospel, his calling was to succumb to evil, the greatest injustice of all time, the crucifixion of a perfect man. His calling was to be overcome by sickness and to die a violent death. His calling was to be cut off, to be a leper, to be crucified, was to be untouchable. Jesus' calling was to forego the miraculous so that he might bring healing and salvation. So these miracles are a pointing of what he has come to do, but he has to suffer and die that he might do so. He might suffer and die that he might do so. So yes, do I believe that miracles are possible? Yes. Do I believe we should pray for miracles? 100%. 100%. But don't forget the big picture that Jesus came to make all things new because one day there will be no need for miracles because everything will be naturalized again in the way that God intended to be. No sickness, no sorrow, no death. All our tears will be wiped away. That is the sign to which these miracles, these signs point. Pray with me. Jesus, the way you handle these miracles is, it's just baffling. And we thank you that you do, that you don't indulge yourself or even us, but that you remembered your calling, that we might have life, and that you would bring salvation for all the world. We thank you, Lord. Be with us for Christ's sake. Amen.